0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys.
1: That would probably be it. Maybe to focus in on on one particular area of use, present that evidence in a much more forceful way, and also pull together that holistic view that, the six elements, as I call them. Pulling them together a lot earlier would have have certainly sped things up a bit. People aren't as good as you think, and you've gotta gotta be, uh, it's very easy to hope that people are better and that you can trust them to do the right thing. Um, And I don't think it's because they're evil or anything, it's just that they have their own viewpoint and their own motives and really trying to understand what their motives are before you come up with an ask or come up with a proposition is very important. And it can be incredibly frustrating, you know, that you you actually think that uh, they're against you. It probably isn't that. It's just that they're looking at it through different eyes.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Mark Koska for the special 50th edition of the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Mark is the inventor of the non-reusable K1 auto-disabled syringe and founder of the Safe Point Charity, which educates people on the dangers of reusing syringes, which cost more than a million lives a year. Mark has had an amazing 30-year odyssey to achieve his goals. He's a man who knows something about patience and perseverance. Welcome to the podcast, Mark, and thank you for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs today. you tell me when you first became aware of the problem with traditional syringes?
1: The K1 syringe is essentially... Um, a syringe which destroys itself after one use which stops any chance of uh, the problem occurring which is where patients are injected with a used piece of equipment and they uh, are in contact with the blood from the previous patient the blood-to-blood transmission is an enormous uh, vector for moving viruses around the world and uh, syringes that destroy themselves after one use are one of the one of the physical barriers that we need.
0: Right, and how difficult is it to make a syringe like that, or how difficult was it at the time when you did it?
1: It was okay, but I mean, now we do, now we have the, the benefits of you know 3D printing and CAD. Back then, we had to make a mold. We actually had to make the physical product. I, I made models, of course, because I was a model maker. But essentially, it took a lot longer then than it does now, and it was a lot more expensive. But, you know, what I had done was go on a journey of really trying to finesse the design before I I cut metal, before I made a prototype mold. And that was very interesting, quite unique in terms of design, and especially the designers that we get in contact with now. We get, fortunately, we get quite a lot of people sort of asking for our opinions, which is nice. The syringe that I designed, I designed out of really trying to understand what the problem was, not what the solution was, not trying to imagine the solution but trying to really understand the scope of the problems and then kind of laid them out in my mind like a jigsaw and what you were left with was a hole and in that hole fit the solution and then it sort of seemed to answer most of the problems
0: right you mentioned problems i mean what, what were the problems as you saw them at the time
1: well problems were came down to three things i mean i looked at 25, 30 different areas in depth over a three year period. But the the problems came down to there was an installed capacity making potentially reusable disposable syringes. So to go to the manufacturers and say, you've got to throw away all this equipment and start again, wasn't going to work. Then there was the cost. If we had used the same equipment, but maybe upgraded the plastic to be biodegradable, for example, and biodegradable plastics are still in their very early stage uh, for mass adoption. So That would have added an incredible cost burden to the product, which, when it reached the retail sector, would have been magnified several times. And thirdly, we didn't want to, I didn't want to introduce a product which had a training burden. In other words, it looked different or it involved a complex procedure, which the nurse or the healthcare worker had to get right and had to learn before the product worked properly. And so, in essence, it was those three things. And that's what I designed, a a product which could be made on existing machinery with a very small modification. could be uh, made for exactly the same price, same plastic, same cycle time, which is how many we make a minute. Everything remained the same and, and ultimately the cost. And then thirdly, there was no training burden. It looks like a normal syringe. It works like a normal syringe. And we found that even without instructions, it takes a healthcare worker a couple of goes to understand how it works. It's very simple and very obvious. And therefore, they can adopt it very, very quickly without any of those burdens.
0: Right. Well, you clearly spent a substantial amount of time trying to understand the problem. And as you say, you know, the different dimensions of the problem. So presumably, when you had developed this, there was interest right away as you looked at, you know, some of the obstacles to development and success of this syringe
1: completely the opposite, sadly. Otherwise, I'd be speaking to you from my yacht right now. But it was pushed back from the word go, and it still exists today. You know, the, the manufacturers, even though I had designed almost the perfect product, the manufacturers have really no interest in trying to make more syringes. One, they're incredibly low margin. Of all disposable medical products, syringes and needles are, are the lowest margin. Almost deliberately, it's their lost leader. So a manufacturer would typically make a range of 50 disposable products from maybe gloves to catheters to infusion sets to syringes, needles, scalpels. And they use the syringe because it's the most commonly used product as their loss leader. So that will reach the market with a very small margin, 10 20%. Whereas a catheter will have a much higher margin, a couple of hundred percent uh, profit margin. And the, the result is that if you come along and ask the industry as a whole to change to a better system, it's not on their radar to be health heroes. It's on their radar to sell widgets. And that's really all they're interested in. So you might imagine that being able to use a syringe once only would increase sales. But the cost of investment to build more capacity just doesn't get the return that is needed to make it exciting. Due to the fact that the profit margins are so so low, and you have to sell an awful lot to get to get that return on investment
0: gosh you must have been gutted at this stage. I mean, what was your reaction when you discovered that people were i mean as you were going along this process, presumably you were getting some feedback, but I guess thought when this would be developed that the case would be clear
1: yeah i kind of I kind of thought that it would be easier than it was. <laughs> And in fact, you know, the, uh, when I started my company, which was after about 12 years from getting involved, I was able to um, convert a factory in Brazil completely over to make our syringe. And by then I would found my partner and uh, the two of us had sold the design to this factory in Brazil. But even still, when they were ready to launch, they received a huge shock. They were actually bought and the factory was destroyed. So that capacity disappeared. And then we had to start again. And then it was a few more factories that looked at it. And eventually we found an amazing, amazingly, um, not aggressive, but a va- amazingly um, motivated family in India who own now has become the second largest syringe factory in the world. And they took the product on and have been an amazing um, savior, really, to the whole movement and, and our particular product.
0: Right. On the face of it, you imagine it's the cliche of the build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door or some version of that. But a lot of talk these days about disruptive technologies and things. It's still surprising, I suppose, the incentive to maintain the status quo and people's unwillingness, particularly when the scale of the impact of using these syringes becomes apparent. Some of the figures I've seen are quite astounding. You know, 40% of the you know documented cases of hepatitis C, is it, caused by unsafe injections and that was some time ago, and other pretty shocking statistics.
1: Yeah, today it's the ninth biggest cause of death in the world. That's not a twisted number. It's actually more than road and car accidents. It's understandable, really, in a way, because even though you know you've got an obvious story, and even though it looks on paper the right thing to do, there are so many stakeholders in this journey. If you look, you know, you've got the big agencies. At one end, such as the UN agencies for health, who really it's in their remit to guide the world to a better solution. And they can only do that when there is enough capacity to introduce it. You can't introduce a better mousetrap if they don't exist. And so you need, because these things are made in billions every month, um, these syringes and needles of any style, you need that momentum built up before you can introduce legislation. And then you also need the funders behind this to be able to supply them to the developing world countries where the problem's most in existence. Then you need to be able to get the manufacturers on board. You've got to get the ministries of health to you know, be interested, the healthcare workers to use them and the patients really to demand them. So you've got an incredibly complex, wide marketplace, which all has to be aligned before any of this can come together. And I suppose I'm not really a big fan of the word social entrepreneur or, well, you know, I, I just do what I do. And it's not because I wanted to be a social entrepreneur. but. I suppose, in a way, the skill of those sort of in that genre is that you've got to join all those dots all the time. It's nothing different to what amazing people do in business. It is a skill and it needs to, you need a lot of persistence and a lot of patience to be able to align all those different stakeholders to push it through the system.
0: You mentioned you have a partner. Were you looking for a partner and did you realize that you wanted a partner? What were you looking for in your partner? Oh, I was desperate for a
1: partner. <laughs> I mean, I know what I'm, you know, reasonably good at and what I'm awful at. And I'm, uh, I'm no good at the admin, the legals, contracts, etc, cetera, et cetera. So I was really looking for a partner who was the antithesis to me. So in other words, someone who wasn't design and marketing and wanted to talk about this 24 hours a day, I was looking for someone who was, um, you know, broad shoulders and could help fund and, uh, and, and nurture the structure behind the business. And that's luckily what I found.
0: Many times social innovators need to develop pilot schemes to show their technologies or solutions and how they work and so forth. And then I, I suppose hopefully that others will see that and can use that then to create more change. Was that your approach?
1: It was, and we were hoping that the government of Brazil would be the uh, sort of lead market for us, the lead pilot. In actual fact, it turned out to be UNICEF. They were our first customer in 2001. And uh, from a very small beginning, we've been able to grow into the largest supplier. To the UNICEF program for immunisation, so we're very proud of that achievement, and we've held that position for the last four or five years, and also the biggest supplier to the government of India and and a few other you know um, statuses like that. So we've we've finally uh, got there and have got many T-shirts which uh, show that the product you know does what it says on the packet.
0: Amazing. When you developed the actual product and you got the patent and so forth, that was clearly a very important step. What other steps did you identify as crucial in this journey?
1: Well, the product was, was one element and it was, as I've just mentioned, you know, there's a very broad spectrum from policy all the way through to patients. So you've got one person at the top who's going to sign that policy, someone, for example, like, you know, Margaret Chan at the World Health Organization, all the way through to five or six billion patients who, especially in the developing world, are exposed to this issue. And so what I was able to do a few years ago was break away from my commercial company, start a small UK charity called SafePoint and uh, with a colleague and a, and a couple of other volunteers and people who've come and gone to help us over various aspects in able to build across the whole spectrum. And we laid that out as a policy, which the World Health Organization were uh, joined in with us, they edited this policy a little bit. And this was issued at the beginning of last year. And it says that by 2020, all syringes in the world have to be auto disable or, you know, similar to my design. And of course, that's uh, about as high as you. Can get in, in endorsement having a WHO recommended policy like that. So that was really the, the final step in creating large demand with finance, with the manufacturers on board, with the ministers of health all saying, yes, this is sensible. For example, one of the things that we were able to do was uh, give an economic forecast, which has been ratified by WHO, that for every dollar spent in the future, $14 will be saved by the country that is implementing safe injections through these products and, and information campaigns. So one in 14 is a very, very important payback figure that, you know, we can see health improve, not only financially because it's not about finance, it's about the lives of, uh, of the patients. You know, we can reduce hospital stays because there's no secondary or tertiary infections in hospitals being given or less. The, the benefits are, are far and wide.
0: It sounds like it's a long journey how many years has it been
1: oh it's uh 33 years next month gosh that is a journey and
0: what have been some of the most difficult moments were there moments where you thought oh, i can't do this this isn't possible or, or the world's not ready
1: i thought the world's not ready <laughs> a lot <laughs> that's a, a very good description I never thought I couldn't do it. I always thought maybe I didn't want to do it, but I I always knew that I would be able to sort of push it through. We're never going to get 100% adoption, but we might get, you know, if we can get over 50%, then... uh, I think that might be worth a small break in my career to uh, say well done to myself. But the journey is made up of lots of highs and lows, of course. But in the end, it, I didn't really think about giving up or stopping or it was more about me improving and getting the team better and, and improving uh, the tactics and the strategy that we were employing. I'm not a big believer in huge teams. And so I've always worked with, you know, maybe four or five people and find that much more comfortable and energizing. So it's been an amazing challenge to myself. And only regret, I suppose, is I wish I could wind the clock back and do it all again with hindsight.
0: Yes, with hindsight, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? (laughs) Um, One or two things would you have done differently, Mark, with the benefit of hindsight?
1: Gosh, I would have. um... I would have been a lot more assertive, I think, towards the World Health Organization and, and policy there. But, you know, maybe that's a, just a wishful dream because in the end, WHO can only make policy change on evidence. And it's only recently that we've got to the point of, you know, having enough evidence and being able to do these economic assessments and having, you know, undercover video and, and seeing also the positive, seeing programs over the last 10 years. Uh, using exclusively ad syringes and there's no negative effect so i think yeah that would, that would probably be it maybe to focus in on a on one particular area of use present that evidence in a much more forceful way and also pull together that holistic view the the six elements as i call them pulling them together a lot earlier would have would have certainly sped things up a bit you know there there's a lot of resistance out there from not not deliberate but there is a lot of inbuilt resistance and i feel proud that we've done something that not many people do and i think i'm not sure that i can castigate myself too much i think we've done pretty well
0: it's a remarkable journey and tremendous tenacity, and I think that's something that we're always tenacious mark <laughs> <laughs>
1: well I, I I kind of made up my mind pretty early on to do this, so I suppose so. what have you learned, Mark on this journey? People aren't as good as you think, and you've got to you've got be uh, it's very easy to hope that people are better and that you can trust them to do the right thing. Um, And I don't think it's because they're evil or anything. It's just that they have their own viewpoint and their own motives. And really trying to understand what their motives are before you come up with an ask or come up with a proposition is very important. And it can be incredibly frustrating, you know, that you you actually think that uh, they're against you. It probably isn't that. It's just that they're looking at it through different eyes. It's that patience of really um, understanding what's going to be good for them which allows you then to modify a little bit and then and then you get agreement from them it's certainly what i try and teach my kids when you know, they find that having a difficult time with either friends or teachers or whatever and trying to get them to look at it through the other person's eyes.
0: Yes, it probably doesn't pay to underestimate the power of the status quo in, in any situation, even if it's suboptimal. There are people who are comfortable with the way things are, be it the local person who supplies water. You know, that's not quite good quality enough and things like that. And I guess finding leverage inside a system like that can be crucially important.
1: Indeed, because, you know, we have a goal and that goal has a certain view, but there's no reason to believe that anyone else has that goal. And therefore you get a mismatch in the same way that an artist or a photographer or a filmmaker can make something which is totally stunning. And of course, we could all kick ourselves and go, why didn't I do that? That was that was that's obvious after the fact. And all we're doing is creating something which in um, in art terms, is we're trying to communicate a goal, aren't we? There's no reason why, you know, 99% of the world are ever going to believe you. And it's our job, you know, to convince them.
0: Well, the whole question of behavioural change is very challenging. And I've seen research which shows that even when people are shown evidence, it clearly proves something if they don't believe it in the way, believing stronger in their beliefs they had in the first place.
1: Totally, totally agree with that. Even nurses, you know, we come across a lot of healthcare workers who've had needle stick accidents and exposed themselves potentially to, you know, uh, dangerous viral infections or bacterial infection. And when you say, would you, you know, would you support the introduction of safer needles, stick products? There are a whole range of products that protect the needles after use, etc. Their answer is no, I wouldn't, which is very surprising. And of course, it comes across that they're trying to stick with the old routines. And, you know, one explanation is they don't want to be embarrassed that they were doing it wrong in the first place, or that they were in, in any way lax and, uh, and they had opened themselves up to a needle stick accident. So it's incredibly complicated. And you've got to be second and third guessing at, at every turn.
0: Presumably, looking forward, there's remnants of these kind of behavioural issues around, still trying to create change in health systems and people to recognise the dangers of the existing approach and the benefits of going ahead with something like the K1 syringe. Presumably, people still somewhat reluctant.
1: Yeah, they are until they use it and then of course it's the greatest thing and <laughs> because once they once they realize that it isn't actually a burden to change the the way they use the the product it doesn't take them longer it's the same price you know then then obviously uh, you you win you win hearts and minds and and that's what the game is it's that slow conversion but we're looking we're looking to that tipping point now right and what's the next step well the next step is to really go back to your one of your comments is we've got to show this pilot on a national scale. Um, we've got to show the adoption of this and the, and the economic benefits on a national scale. WHO are running three pilot countries at the moment of India, Uganda and Egypt. We're looking at helping in another couple. And I think moving up towards 2020, the conversion and the installation of safer equipment for syringes and needles to be manufactured in, in factories is going to be a parallel effort. My role really is on the uh, national adoption, but I know that the manufacturers are incredibly busy now gearing up for that. 2020 deadline we're all pretty focused on crossing the tipping point around then great how long more have you got with your patents mark sadly the patent runs out next year so we've still got a ways to go in terms of crossing the other goal but the syringe is one element the needle we've got some new patents filed on safer needles so now we're licensing those out to industry sadly patents only last 20 years and mine on the original syringe is up next summer well,
0: I'm sure you'll have more creative ideas and the journey's not over. But thank you very much, Mark, for taking the time today to share your story. And I wish you the very best in the future. Not at all.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.